Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 14, and I think we're just going to jump right in, my friends, because there is a topic that I want to talk about today that is going to have our attention, and it really is about getting underneath one verse, one verse that comes to us in chapter 14, verse 20. So what I want to do is go ahead and read chapter 14. Uh, I know last time I read uh, through verse 20. I will go ahead and read chapter 14, verses 17 to 24, which really takes us to the end of chapter 14. So if you want to pull your Bibles out, and again, this is Melchizedek, as we talked about yesterday, right? Blessing Abram. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, that's going to be our point of emphasis this evening. We continue. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ishkal, and Mamre take their share. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this raises the much larger question, right? The first time we see the language of tithing in sacred scripture, what is the, the proper approach to giving, and specifically a Catholic approach to giving? Now, historically speaking, there are three modes of giving, okay? Tithing, free will offering, and almsgiving. Now, maybe some of us just kind of lump those three together, but we have to be students of history here a little bit to appreciate just not that they are different, but why they are different, and ultimately what that means for us in our tithing, free will offering, and in the end, almsgiving. This is good subject matter to be talking about during the Lenten season for sure. Now, as we can begin to pick up here in the Old Testament in Genesis 14, we know that in the Old Testament, a tithe referred to a tenth, a tenth of the annual increase in crops or flocks that was exacted in support of the priesthood at Jerusalem. Uh, what we read in verse 20 in many ways anticipates later Mosaic law, which 
required the lay tribes of Israel to pay tithes to the clerical tribe of Levi for their spiritual services. You can read about that in uh, Numbers chapter 18. Now, the tithe was both like a tax, and we could also say unlike a tax. It was like a tax in the sense that it was a compulsory, an exaction, not a free will offering, if you will. However, we could say that it was unlike a tax in that it was only exacted from natural goods that had an increase, right? So fields and flocks yield increase, so tithes were paid out of them. Uncultivated property, then, on the other hand, yields no increase, so no tithe was uh, paid on the value of that property. So the only items subject to the tithe were those which yielded an increase. This was in contrast to free will offerings, which were gratuitous gifts given in thanksgiving for a particular blessing confirmed by God. And as I noted, three different modes of giving. Lastly, there are alms. Alms is that giving which is assistance specifically given to the poor. So this threefold division of giving, we know as we read the New Testament, would persist in the New Testament age, right? At the time the church was founded, its ministers were supported by free will offerings of the congregation. Certainly, we see that our Lord taught that the laborer is worthy of his wage, huh? St. Paul teaches in his first letter to the church of Corinth, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 to 14, I know in our study on 1 Corinthians we talked about this a little bit, there we read, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, Paul says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, in the patristic period, monetary or in-kind free will offerings appeared to be really the primary way the church was maintained, huh? However, free will offerings were no longer sufficient to maintain the the massive buildings and explosion of clerical vocations that came in the 4th and 5th centuries. So what did the church have to do but really reinstate the Old Testament tithe, that is, an exaction of the tenth part of the increase arising from the profits of land and stock? So as in the Old Testament, the tithe was only on natural assets that yielded an increase. The tithe, then, very much seems to have been a general obligation, I would say up until the late 5th century. Uh, We see it taught as an obligation of divine law in local synods from 585 and onward. Beginning with the uh, capitularies of Charlemagne, Charlemagne, uh, what lived at the end of the 8th century, uh, died early 9th century, we see civil law enforcing the payment of the tithe. Uh, This ultimately would be the the norm throughout Christendom from the Middle Ages into the modern age. Now, it may seem questionable to (laughs) the modern Catholic why the tithe as an exaction was ever considered prudent by the church. I mean, why not just rely, 
exclusively on free will offerings, as is the case today in most parts of the world. I mean, this would make the giving more authentic and certainly to some degree prevent, I think, the faithful from resenting the tithe as a a church tax, quote-unquote. Interestingly enough, though, my friends, the legislators of the late medieval period who instituted the, the civilly enforced tithe did so with the desire to ultimately spare congregations from constant demands on their flocks from their, uh, for their pastor's livelihood, or for that matter, the upkeep of the church, which was both onerous to the laity who had to endure them, as well as something that would have been beneath the dignity of the sacred ministers to engage in a kind of pleading, right? Only parishioners sufficiently capable of making freewill offerings were solicited, and and this was done in private. This was done in private, usually in an in-home visitation by the priest. The church preferred instead to rely on permanent endowments or, or perpetual foundations, which brought the additional benefit of freeing the upkeep of the church from the temporary generosity of any one group of people. This would ultimately, my friends, bring greater stability to the local church's over, we could say, many generations, right? Now, by the high Middle Ages, roughly, almost every piece of property had certain canonical restrictions upon it, stipulating that a certain amount of its income to be set apart for the support of the local clergy. So, the medieval tithe was an exaction of 10% of the increase in flocks or lands set aside for the temporal needs of the church and ultimately enforced by civil law. And what did this mean? Well, ultimately, this brought long-term stability and freed the parish from having to be constantly uh, solicited for funds. Admittedly, one of the most unpleasant aspects of the modern church experience, for sure. And you don't have to talk to many people about that, right? (laughs) So all of this is well and good. But to some degree, as we talk about the tithe and what is going on, uh, or what is first seen in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, none of this gets to the heart of the matter. How much ought we to give? While the tithe has always been set at 10%, the church has never necessarily dictated what appropriate free will offering is. And this is an important question to explore, as with the elimination of civilly enforced tithing throughout most of Christendom, free will offerings are the mainstay of parish life. Of course, per uh, scripture and tradition, the faithful are bound to support their pastors, right? And per canon law and legislation, since time immemorial, pastors are obliged to live without ostentation or needless luxury, right? So, within the two obligations of the faithful to give and and the pastors not to waste, what is fitting? I think this really, in the end, is the prevailing question. There has never been a hard and fast rule here outside of the 10%. And perhaps Catholics get too caught up in identifying the correct number rather than than the correct concept. Uh, Scriptural principles, my friends, teach us and remind us that whatever one gives is pleasing to God, with, of course, the important caveat that it ought to be given out of our substance, 
not out of our excess. Uh, uh, that is to say, we do not give God what is just left over. Uh, for those of us who are familiar with the episode of the widow's might, this is what is going on. Uh, for the Pharisees gave out of their excess, and the widow gave out of her substance. The levels of giving were different for the two, but clearly God was more pleased with the widow's giving, both because of the disposition of humble faith with which she gave, and that's certainly what is so foundational to the gift itself, but also because it represented a more generous offering in the qualitative sense. What do we read in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 4? For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her want hath cast in all the living that she had, which, as you and I both know, was so little. Now, what does it mean to give out of our substance? Uh, this is always denoted that our giving should what? But hurt a little bit, right? Certainly, we have a duty to provide for our families, and God does not call us to give to such a degree that we impoverish our own households by doing so. We need to go with less so that others have more, yes, but that doesn't mean that we stop providing for our own kids. To give out of our substance rather than our excess simply means that our giving should always challenge us. Our current Pope, Pope Francis, as well as popes in, in recent memory, have all said as much. I have noted John Paul II's visit to the United States back in 1979 before. While in Yankee Stadium, he said that the poor of the United States and of the world are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You must never be content to leave them just the crumbs from the feast. You must take of your substance. There it is, right? You must take of your substance and not just of your abundance in order to help them. And you must treat them like guests at your family table. So there you have it. Give from your substance. Now, I go to this passage because in our tithing, uh, free will offering and almsgiving, the overarching principle is that we just don't do it because it is what we are told to do, but because it is an opportunity for spiritual growth, right? And our pastors and those who are in need, we are reminded they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we invite them to our dinner table. It is one thing to, to have a homeless person come to you and ask for money and, and to give them money. I'm not saying that's, that's a bad thing. But encounter them, engage them. As I've noted before on more than one occasion, the greatest poverty isn't so much what we don't have in the material good, but what is missing spiritually. Friendship, fraternity. What did Mother Teresa say, St. Teresa of Calcutta? The greatest poverty in the West is loneliness, the absence of love, the absence of love. Now, to really probe on this point, <laughs> while giving is associated with thanksgiving and, and the need to support God's church, Catholic tradition has always associated it with penance, right? And certainly many of us are aware of this during uh, this Lenten season. 
Although almsgiving is different from free will offering, both forms of giving, my friends, in many ways can be and ought to be penitential in the sense that they give us an opportunity to what? But practice mortification. Mortification is nothing more than putting to death our worldly attachments. Since love of money is the root of all evil, as 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 reminds us, our giving patterns offer us a, a continued opportunity, we could say, to divest ourselves of our attachments to mammon. This is a good reason why our giving, while remaining within levels uh, dictated by prudence, should hurt, right? Should hurt. At the very least, we should experience on the material level a pinch of poverty, if not a pronounced pull, okay? If it doesn't hurt, if we don't feel the pinch or the pull, then we are probably failing in our attempt to detach ourselves from mammon. And note what mammon means in the original Hebrew. Just not riches. Just not riches. What did Jesus talk about in the Sermon on the Mount? What was at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? But trusting God, right? And what's right before that great sermon on trust? Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. Do not be preoccupied. But trust in the providential care of God. What comes right before that? But him talking about mammon, which in the Hebrew means trust in riches. So it's not just so much wealth or riches, but your trust and your confidence in riches to the point where you are no longer trusting God. This, my friends, is why that whole Sermon on the Mount starts with that great beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That first beatitude speaks to a way of life, a state of being. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. That permanent disposition. This is what Jesus is after. And the more we practice mortification, the more deeply rooted we are going to be in that disposition. And this is why, my friends, as Acts chapter 20, verse 35 reminds us, <laughs> it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, as it relates to the question of giving and blessing, what does St. Paul say in his second letter to the church of Corinth, uh, chapter 9, verse 6? He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows in blessings shall also reap blessings. So here, notice the proportionality of the gift to the blessing. What's more, we should also be reminded that temporal wealth, for all of this discussion, <laughs> is not an evil in the New Testament. It is still a good, but its goodness is subordinated to spiritual goods, which are far superior and towards which the use of temporal wealth ought to be directed. Temporal wealth, my friends, like any other temporal thing, always must be moderated. Moderated according to the virtue of temperance and always put at the disposal of that great gift and virtue of charity. Like any other temporal good, we always run the risk of coveting its possession, which always becomes a great evil. For all of this, 
Because the church has such a long historical tradition of seeking out and, and depending upon perpetual foundations for the support of its churches and monasteries and clergy, the church has historically viewed the right use of wealth as a source of blessing that in the end is pleasing to God. Consequently, <laughs> all temporal gifts are to be seen as blessings from God. But we must resist, resist the temptation, that enticing enchantment to think that all blessings consist in such temporal gifts. The greatest gifts, the greatest gifts are those that come in the order of grace. Grace, right? Grace comes from the Greek charis, which just simply means gift. So, by way of closing, as we revisit this question concerning the tithe, <laughs> since lay people have an obligation to support the church, they ought to, we ought to reflect frequently into what we possess and what has been properly given to us by the Lord, the use of which he will inquire into at our final judgment. In that final conversation we have, my friends, in that final judgment, that particular judgment, right? Everything will be brought to light. And that includes most especially how you gave to build up the kingdom of God. The parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25 should always be in our mind. On the day the Lord calls us, we do not want to be guilty of, of hoarding our Lord's treasure and refusing to put it to work for him, for the advancement of his kingdom. We do not want to be like the fool in, in Luke chapter 12 who laid up wealth for himself but was struck dead in the midst of his covetousness. Let us be voluntarily humble, <laughs> spiritually poor before the goodness and the greatness of God. Remember when you talk about the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit really really does speak to the anawim of God, those who are poor in God, those who are humble, bent over, those who are on bended knee. The disposition of the poor was one that was always what? Reliant upon the master. And of course, as we put this into its proper Christian context, the master is Jesus Christ. Now, for all of this, <laughs> it should also be noted that as we talk about tithing, free will offerings, almsgiving, all of this, these were traditionally separate. Uh, one does not fulfill one's obligation to support the church by giving alms and, and vice versa, okay? In other words, if you have given to the poor, you are still expected to give to the church, while giving to the church alone does not satisfy the mandate for giving alms to the poor. And yes, here we are talking about giving money, giving material goods, but also we should put this in, in its spiritual context, taking the word tithe and putting it into the context of time, right? Do we give a tenth of our time to the church? 
Do we make sure that we are giving an X amount of time each and every day to our church? First and foremost, to God, right? Because if we're not going there, then we will be no good to anyone. And here, of course, I'm talking about prayer. But out from that prayer, make sure you're giving time to your church. Remember how I have talked about this before. There are 1,440 minutes in a day. We roughly sleep away seven hours, which gives us approximately 1,000 minutes in a day. 1,000 minutes in a day. How many minutes are we giving to the church? And maybe we're not talking about a tenth here. Maybe, you know, if you're to do the math, 7,000 minutes is, is 700 minutes. Are you asking us to then, Joe, give 700 minutes of our time a week? I'm not saying that. But what about 70 minutes a week? Is that too much to ask? This is the kind of challenge that we need to be thinking about. We give God time in prayer so that we might be more disposed to ministry in the church. We give uh, the church uh, money out of our substance so that we might not be lacking in spiritual goods, blessings. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift from which to reflect upon what it means to give, just not in the material good, but also in the spiritual good, uh, specifically time, how you challenge us to become the best version of who we are as sons and daughters of God in the light of our giving. Put this challenge before us each and every day, Lord God, that we might be made more whole in you. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.